Hi everyone and welcome back to the Poma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. And I am really excited today because uh, I've got a guest who is a really good friend of mine um, and somebody who's writing I love and uh, who's, she's been on the show before, back in back in last, back last year. And now she has a new book out and we're going to talk about it. So welcome back, Marlena Graves. Thank you, James. I'm just giddy and happy to talk to you. And even if you're or I'm across the pond, it's just such a blessing to be here with you. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm glad. I'm really glad to, really glad you're here. And um, yes, we had a really great conversation back in the autumn. And uh, now you've got a new book out. And we're going to talk about that. So um, tell us about this new book. Okay, it's called The Way Up is Down, Finding Yourself by Forgetting Yourself, um, coming out July 14th, 2020 with InterVarsity. I've seen that some people are already getting it, at least those have, who have ordered from InterVarsity Press here in the United States. Um, what I guess I could tell you about what kind of motivated me writing it. And prior to the 2016 election, I was very disgusted with evangelical politics and behavior here in the United States um, with people who I used to look up to, I used to listen to on the radio before they had a podcast, Christian radio here. And um, a lot of the people that have the mic, I like to say that have the mic, meaning they're the ones that are interviewed by the national media when you hear the word evangelical, uh, white evangelical pastors. And Basically, I was just disgusted with them selling out to power and the same people that told me, like, your character and your integrity count all of a sudden did it in about faith and now uh, politicians' uh, character didn't matter. But even pastors, uh, leaders were doing a lot of things behind closed doors and harming their co-workers or the people on their staff or sexually abusing people um and they would always say the catholic church was a train wreck but uh here in america uh, the people that claim to love the bible and study scripture most closely are themselves a train wreck not only with sexual um sins and misconduct because that's not the only thing that i mean by immoral but greedy a uh, love of money and love of power and so I thought the church that we were, and I include myself in this, that we as the American church are being a bad witness to who Jesus is. And so I wanted to look at Jesus' life and how he lived and what, and get back to what the gospel is. And in essence, um, I take uh, the name of my book uh, from Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it's known as a, you know, the Greek word kenosis, where you empty of yourself, of your rights and your power mm. so that you can be filled with God and serve God. Some people read my book, they say it's a book about humility, I think so. Um, but I really think of kenosis as when we have all our lives filled up with greed or whatever it is that crowds out the life of God in us. You can't have God in us if you have all these other things crowding out God's life. So we empty ourselves, we sacrifice to love other people, not even we need God's help so that we can be full of God's life. And so that's what the book's about. And I think it's my look at what I think we should be as Christians in this moment. Yeah, and it's very powerful. It's very powerful. I mean, even the beginning, there's this, in the beginning, there's this story of you 
getting a voucher for your for a meal and mm-hmm. you becoming aware of um, your different your the difference between you and others in terms of how culture sees you how society sees you and labels mm-hmm. that you're given um, that was a really powerful story um, tell us a bit about about that yeah I you know, I didn't know until I went to a Christian university how poor I was when I grew up, and I know we talked about that a little in the last podcast. But I knew something about it that, you know, I got a, in America, we say a free lunch or a voucher. Um, because, you know, when you go to school, you either pay for your lunch, carry your lunch, get a reduced price for your lunch each day, or you get a free lunch. And uh, the free lunch tickets I'm even picturing right now, sometimes they were like bright pink or bright purple or bright yellow. And uh, they were really obvious who had the free lunches. And the poor kids have the free lunch. And, you know, uh, in America, you will hear a joke as there's no such thing as a free lunch, meaning that lunch is never free someone has to pay for it so yes someone was paying for my lunch and taxes or whatever but getting a free lunch and having that ticket uh was like having a big sign on me that said poor um and so mm. sometimes i was really embarrassed um about it and sometimes i tried not to eat so i wouldn't have to present my lunch ticket because i was so embarrassed about it um because you know kids were behind me in line or in front of me they'd know i'm the one with lunch and i don't know if they felt that way but there was a stigma enough that i i felt all you know the free lunch kids and so in that chapter i talk about you know growing up in poverty and how i hated it because of things we didn't have like Sometimes we didn't have enough food to eat, if there, especially if there was no school. Um, and but looking back now, I I don't wish poverty on anyone, but I can see how God used it in my life. And I thought, oh my word, Jesus can relate to my poverty because He Himself was very poor. Um, and and after He Himself was very poor, yet in Matthew chapter six twenty five through thirty three, He says. You know, don't worry about what to eat or drink because God cares for the flowers and the birds and he'll do the same for you. You can only say that if he had to trust God in that way. That's true. That's very true. And one of the things that I noticed in this book is how much you began to connect with Jesus and his story and his circumstances that he found himself in and see yourself there. Uh, you know, and that's the kind of the unlearning, the letting go of everything that you talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of humbling ourselves, emptying ourselves, um, which is what Jesus did. And there's a really great metaphor there. And one of the things that really challenged me about the book was when you talked about God meeting us in your in suffering. So. Talking, you were talking in about in the book. I think about a really challenging time you were going through. Things were really difficult, and you quoted Mother Teresa with with a quote that I I resonated with so much, which was, "Is this how you treat your friends?" 
Avila. Yes. Sorry, Teresa of Avila, not Mother yes. Teresa. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my mistake. Um, yeah. I, get, I get confused. Yes, but that quote, um, yes, is this how you, t- to God, is this how you treat your friends? You know, it's a really, and I resonate so much with that anger and that frustration and that, and, you know, that you feel towards God sometimes. That, you know, that it's like, yeah, you tell us everything's going to be okay, but you tell us that you love us and tell us that you're our friend, but then this, like, really? You know, it was, yeah, what was your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I was, it, I was uh, referring to, and I, no, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have the book right in front of me. Uh, so I can't remember word for word. Isn't that funny? I wrote it, but I don't remember. I don't have it memorized these words. Yeah. But I was, you know, talking about how uh, Christian community had did me wrong, us wrong, and so we lost all our friends, our jobs for standing up for what is right, and um, and you know, sometimes we think, well, when we follow Christ. There's like a formula. If we obey, and people have talked about this before, but if we obey you, God, then, you know, if we do A and B, then we'll get C, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, we lost all of our friends. We stood up. We told the truth. We defended the people that were being, um, that injustices were being said against them, the poor. We put our, and happily put our income on the line. And there were, it was just an abuse of power by people at a Christian institution um, and, and at a university where we worked. And even the people that were on the board told us, you know, you guys didn't do anything wrong. This was a power play. And they were getting out people that weren't like them. And unfortunately, you and Sean aren't their people because we cared for the poor and because we <laughs> defended a friend against false theological accusations. Mm-hmm. So this was like a few years later. I said this to God. I'm like, okay. We did lose our jobs, and we were willing to put our jobs on the line because um, we would rather have a clean conscience than do what's wrong. So we took a financial hit. We lost our community, but even several years later, we hadn't that hadn't been restored. Like, I'm like, okay, this is like going out on so many years, and we're still suffering uh, the consequences of other people's sin, and we did what's right. And that's what led me to say, you know, with uh, Teresa Vavala, it said, you know, she was crossing a, um, you know, a stream, and I think was it her horse or whatever, donkey, you know, threw her off, and they were going to go start a convent. She says to God, is that how you treat your friends? Or God, she heard God say, this is how, you know, something along how I treat my friends. And then she says to God, well, that's why you have so few of them. You know, if you're going to be God's friend, why are you being treated this way? And so, yeah, I was just honest about that in the book. And, you know, but then I remember Jesus, too, God's son, perfect, suffered unjustly, lots of injustices to his reputation, was poor, was beaten, ultimately killed and crucified for doing and living rightly. And so I can, um, I don't have an answer for the problem of evil, but I know that Jesus experienced this. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it, with Jesus? He, he's so much of what resonates with him is, is the solidarity. Yeah. You know, he lost a parent. He was ostracised by his family. He was betrayed by his friends. He was oppressed and by a system. He was, you know, he's, he, you know, he went through a major emotional, physical trauma. You know, he's. Yeah. 
he's been through the whole thing, you know, and survived in a way. I mean, didn't survive, but you know, he didn't. He didn't beat him in that sense. He came out the other side, resurrection. You know, um, and then he carried the scars of all of that with him after that. He didn't. He didn't ignore what had happened. He acknowledged it um, and owned it, uh, which is a real challenge for all of us. But. Yeah, the more time's gone on, the more I see Jesus as a solidarity figure. Yeah, and I think that's what always comforts me. Like, oh, Jesus, you were poor too. You probably knew what it was like not to have a lot of food, especially if Joseph died. Because the Eastern Orthodox Church thinks, you know, he was, and maybe the Catholic too, Joseph was old when he married Mary. And that we don't see him mentioned at all in Scripture after Jesus was 12 years old in the temple. So probably Jesus grew up, you know, I mean, obviously the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics think that uh, they take the understanding that when we see Jesus' brother, uh, that the word cousin, that could also mean cousin, was used in Scripture. But however you parse it out, he had to provide, I think, for his mother and whoever, um, and uh, they... He didn't have much, I don't think. I mean, maybe whatever he did with his carpentry, but, I mean, his mom was so poor that she only had those, the pigeons to give for an offering. You see that that was the offering of the poor mm. uh, when he started in, in the temple when he was um, eight, 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 eight days old. So, mm. um, so I was, it's really struck me over the years that I can identify with Jesus in poverty. You know what it's like to be poor. And it's, I'm awestruck that he did not choose to come and live as a palace and be born as a king or prince here on earth. He decided to be with the poorest people. Yeah, he chose that. Yeah, he chose that life. And, yeah, that's a very powerful thing. That's a very powerful thing. Um, yeah, I mean, what's your experience of learning to empty yourself and what did you find in the process of that? Well, like I mentioned earlier, um, I think I'm better to this point, but when we were, you know, our our community was taken away, our income was taken away, the life that we thought we would have was taken away by the wrongdoing of Christians in power. I had information, like, on emails and Sean, emails implicating, you know, wrongdoing. And, um, you know, I had to learn not to take vengeance, not to call wrong wrong, but when to speak and make sure that I don't act out of vengeance because the Lord says vengeance is mine. So not take justice in my own hands um, because uh, while... I've been very clear about the, their wrongdoing. Uh, a lot of the wrongdoers no longer live, or no longer work there, and they were. It's like the they were the um, what Sean and I call the hitmen for the mafia. Uh, the mafia had them do the hit work, and then they fired them. And so I was like, oh my word, they experienced a little bit of what we experienced, and I wasn't even happy about it. I was kind of felt sorry for them. Um, but I think my emptying has come is like I have to keep forgiving 
when I want to um, take matters into my own hands, when I want to bring justice to myself. You know, in America, <laughs> I don't know if they do this in England, you know, if people like to take the law into their own hands. I mean, this is happening now, right? There's white mm-hmm. militias that roam around. Uh, uh, you know, the people, the men that killed Ahmad Arbery, they're, uh, Arbery, they're like, they must have imagined themselves as the police. They were chasing an African-American. In this case, you know, he was innocent. They killed him. But I can see in that I, and I've said this before, that I too am a chain with my own able. I can act like Cain if I allow myself to run away with uh to take justice and vengeance into my own hands. Now, I want to be careful again. I'm not saying speak out against injustice. I'm not saying act against injustice. But there comes to a point where God says vengeance is mine. I have to say, God, those men, it was men, it was white men, those men who have done so evil to so many people where I used to work and people lost incomes, had mental health issues, kids were like, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. And I think I, I talked about this on your podcast last time. People ask me, Marlena, why are you still a Christian if when people act like this? Like, I'm like, God, they're going to have to answer to you. Um, and so, for example, and I think, James, I actually think that you've been tweeting about this. Um, like, I guess in mo- modern parlance, I'm not going to take, use whatever power I have to cancel and to um, brutalize them with my tongue and words, even though they did harm to us, because then I'm becoming just like them. And I think you said you said something about that, whether fundamentalism, because that they were fundamentalists. Yeah. Whether the right or the in America, on the right or the left, they're like guilty of the same thing. So I guess what I'm saying is the way I empty myself in that particular situation is not taking vengeance that I maybe could take given the information that I have or had. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, that whole not taking vengeance. It's a very difficult thing to do. (laughs) Because when when you feel like you've been wronged and you're on the right and, you know, you want justice, it's really easy to just think, I want vengeance. You know, there's there's a difference between vengeance and justice. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, I feel that because yeah, and I remember tweeting all of that. You know that we can, we can. It could be. It doesn't matter what you actually believe. You can be on the. You can be on the left. Or you can be on the right. But you can make the same mistakes. You can. Mm-hmm. You can exclude people. You can be divisive. You can uh, hurt people. And yeah, the way that we hold our beliefs and the way that we express them is as important as to as what we believe yeah and i was also going to say too along with that not taking vengeance and the way that i empty myself it's kind of the flip side flip side of the coin is i have to do what jesus calls us to do in matthew 5 44 love my enemies that is definitely emptying myself because i want to react this or that way and just let them have it the ones that i'm talking about but other people that mistreat me too right i want to let them have it Especially when I've been wrong. Now, I'll be careful. We have to have our boundaries, and we can be assertive. But when I say let them have it, is using more force. You know, like the old thing, an eye for an eye, 
you know, it's not usually just an eye for an eye. You'll take an arm and a leg and slash them to pieces. You know, very seldom can we restrain ourselves in our hate or vengeance once we let it loose. Um, you know, seldom is there just one punch given. Uh, you know, you beat the heck out of someone because you're so angry, right? And so I think a major way in that way that I empty myself is, like I said, not taking vengeance, but also actively loving my, my enemies, people that mistreat me. Or like on social media, people say a falsehood against me. I mean, I don't react to everything, but I try to engage them. I tell myself, okay, this is a person, I think, if it's not a bot. Um, they, they have me all figured out in my mind who they think I am, which is probably wrong. Uh, maybe there's some right. And so I try to, like, okay, remember to myself, this is a human being that God loves, even if I could care less about them right now because of how they're treating me. And so I have to love them when they're acting like my enemies. I've had to love people that try to sabotage me out of jealousy in work environments. That's very hard in the church, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And sadly, that doesn't surprise me in the church that that happens. Um, because there's still so much patriarchy in the church. You know, it's still still so many white men in positions of power and don't like to give that up. You know, and loving our enemies is the most difficult... It, I, I think it's one of the most difficult sayings of Jesus. That he's saying, because he says, love your enemy and do good to those who hate you. You know, pray for those who persecute you. You know, it's like... I sometimes I think we don't even want to understand the depth of what that actually means because it's so difficult to put into practice, you know. And I'm I I'm not I'm no different. I struggle with it as well. Like there's people I just I despise them and I can't stand them and they've hurt me. And yeah, it's yeah, but I can't I can't become what they are. I've got to somehow say, okay, I don't like you and I don't like what you did, but you're still you're still made in the divine image and I have to honour that you know um, and sometimes the best way we can love them is actually just to make space for them I guess to um, so that then so that they're not hurting us and we're not we're not even tempted to hurt them because all that does actually is create a cycle of pain and mm -hmm. trauma and that's not that's not helpful in the end and I want to say, though, for example, for, like, transgressions, like, murderous and sexual abuse and stuff, loving yeah. someone might be like, you, I mean, you need to let the law know, because they need, lo the loving thing to do is to have them isolated from other human beings, right? Yeah. So, loving doesn't mean that we allow ourselves to be abused. Absolutely. I, I don't know, we could have many podcasts about this, what love would look like of our enemies, like you said. Um, and, you know, sometimes when people hear that, they think that we allow ourselves to be physically or sexually abused. And in that case, if there's anyone listening, I, I pray that you get help or reach out um, and not remain in that situation. That is not what I mean. I'm talking about other circumstances outside of that. Um, but, yes, it is. And, and I think we need, James, the community's help, the Christian community's help to learn how to love sometimes. You, you might need to say, hey, or I need to say, hey, you know, this is going on with me what might be the loving thing to do and maybe all the loving thing i mean it's what boundaries like i'm not going to even respond because if i respond it is not going to be good so loving would just be like letting it go sometimes it's not responding to people on social media and they might think they're being ignored but i'm like 
it would be far worse if I responded, right? <laughs> or in real life, right? It's putting boundaries sometimes, loving our enemies. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it is. That, that's part of it. Yeah, putting boundaries in place. It's so, so important to do that because we have to protect ourselves, we have to protect them. Yeah. Um, you know, and we have to protect the people that the other, we have to protect other people from being hurt by them as well, in a way. Yeah. So, um, which is what we were talking about with abusers and criminals, you know, murderers. They need to be protected, society needs to be protected from them so that they're not, yeah. they're not at risk. Uh, and, you know, I suppose in one sense you could say they need to be rehabilitated and, Mm-hmm. You know, I suppose in prison they could in a good prison. I suppose they could, they could do that. I actually heard a story once. I think somebody told me this on this on this podcast that somebody um, who murdered somebody went to, was convicted, owned up to it completely, was convicted and put on, put on death row. Um, the father of this, the person that they murdered, were Christ, the, the parents were Christians, and they used to, and he he got no visitors. This guy and. Uh, and but the parents started visiting him and talking mm. to him and listening to him and praying with him and saying that they hated what he did um, but they forgave him and this person actually became a Christian <laughs> and um, got an early release and started going around talking about Jesus and how and redemption and that you know that, no, that, that nobody's lost and you, know, you don't have to give up on on life and you don't have to let what you do define you you can you know and so it's amazing that's what that's what can happen and that's because they love their enemy these parents yeah. I mean that is I mean can you imagine loving the going to visit in prison the person that killed your child you know and yeah, saying you've forgiven them I mean that's a, that's just an amazing thing I don't know if I could do that I don't even have children I don't think I could do that um, mm-hmm. um, but it shows I suppose what's possible uh, I suppose that's what Jesus was talking about, you know, love your enemies and pray for them, and you know, and that. But that is just such a difficult commandment. <laughs> and did he do that on the cross, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He yeah. even prayed for them while he was dying. Yeah, while they were killing him, while he was mm-hmm. near death. Yeah, uh, there was no um, kind of anger or resistance, even to what they were doing to him. Yeah. He practiced it, yeah. He absolutely practiced it. Um, he got more with God actually than uh, than the people that were killing him, which is which takes us back to kind of your story because you've been obviously you've talked about what you went through for doing the right thing and feeling like God wasn't wasn't listening, you know. And it was it was one of those moments of you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, so. Another th- another one of the things that you talk about in the book is social justice and spiritual formation and the link between action and contemplation. So t- mm-hmm. so talk about that. T- tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I I mean you again. Where you, I know you have a various audiences. You were talking about that before. Um, uh, we started recording, so I'm talking from an American context. Uh, and it might be different, but you know, in America, they call the people that work for social justice, you know, trying to help the poor through systems, not just individually, but pass laws that help the poor and the marginalized. They call, I mean, they call people that seek that liberal because they think it should all be done personally in America. You should 
do it on a personal level. And I would agree you should do it on a personal level. And and people say, well, you know, local churches should help the poor, do this, that, or the other. I'm like, really? We don't even want to sacrifice hardly anything. That would take us sacrificing a huge amount of our income. Like, I mean, we can barely part with it now. So we'd have to sacrifice... 50% of our income to give people insurance, to fund other things. Um, and so when people say that, I'm like, if you think through it, that's not going to happen because we are so greedy with our money now. And we're like so rich compared to most of the world. But people that say, hey, you know, police brutality, uh, helping kids after they're born, uh through the state and individually, they call people like that liberal, you know, in a derisive, mean sort of way. But, um, you know, they probably would have said the same thing about the abolitionists trying to abolish slavery, the liberals, right? Do uh, where you're at, William Wilberforce took him 50 years to abolish the slave, slave trade, right? Um, yeah. So, I... Um, but in church history, that was never separated. You gave individually, you know, what you had, and, and you followed Jesus. You know, you, you you prayed, you fasted, you gave alms, you know, gave to the poor, um, and you also held your tongue and didn't take vengeance and, you know, obeyed your parents. All that went together in church history. But for some reason, in the United States in the last 200 years, we kind of separated that. There's like the people that you know, hold their tongue, read their Bible every day, pray. And then there's the people that, um, and this is kind of like a false binary, but the people that help the poor, um, not just individually, but think that you should vote for policies and laws that help the poor. So here in America, those often that's divided, right? Yeah. And, and what I'm saying is the Bible transcends American politics and political categories. In church history, this was never separated, and I fight against that. I'm like, no, you, you know, you hold your tongue, you love your enemy, you obey your parents, you don't lie, you don't commit adultery, and you also fight for the justice of the marginalized and the poor in the political systems and systems of the world. And so my book is an attempt I think my book is spiritual formation. That's what spiritual formation looks like. And then we've tried to separate those in the last couple hundred years in the West, at least, here in the United States. And so that's what I mean by Jesus and justice. They go together, never to be separated. That's right. I absolutely agree. Because growth, meditation, reflection always has to lead to action. Yes. On its own, it doesn't mean, on its own doesn't mean much. You know, I mean, Yes, you will grow and you will mature and you'll you'll become closer to to God and more yourself, more the person that you've always been. But if there's nothing that follows on from that, in terms of social justice um, action of some kind, whatever work, whatever way works for you, but of some kind of activism, some kind of taking a stand for for social justice, then you've kind of missed the point. You know, it's. You know, and that's, I mean, I've talked about this before about um, unlearning white privilege and unlearning systemic racism is part of the spiritual journey that white people, white people need to go on. Because and that's part of it. It's, that's part of the, the action, the social justice, is that 
that falls under that category. You know, we can't just do the the work if we're not doing that work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like if you are loving God, it should naturally flow out that you love your neighbor. And people say, well, yes, I do love my neighbor. I work at the food pantry, and uh, or I give tithes to my church, and I praise the Lord. But as other people have said, I'm not saying anything new. You have to examine the systems that put the neighbors in that bad situation. It's not because, most of the time, it's not because people are lazy. And that's a false myth and narrative in the United States. People are poor because they're lazy. There are some lazy. There's lazy rich people. I've said this before. I know stories, of personal stories, of people that work for their rich father who are, spend their time on video games all day, and they get paid way more than the other workers, but they hardly do anything. This person would be lazy, but they have a lot of money. That's because they have daddy gear, right? Uh, not because they're hard workers. And so there are lazy, rich people, lazy, poor people. Some people just have an inheritance so that they can be lazy. And so that, that's just false to say people don't have food because they're lazy. I mean, some people may, but most of the times we have to examine the systems to put people in those places. And, um, you know, those are wicked systems. Uh, uh, and spiritual things in high places, like Ephesians says, um, not only in the world system, but demonic systems. And so we have to work, I mean, slavery is a classic example, abolishing slavery, what William Wilberforce did in England. He didn't just say, you know, be nice to your slaves. He said, slavery needs to end because that's putting people in bad positions. And so he was a Christian. I mean, there's lots of examples from church history of people doing that. But I don't know, it's just a rampant american individualism it's just a false notion you know manifest destiny there's lots of people like see and raw and others writers uh that have talked about that mark charles and so uh they do a good job of that but i'll just say that um that's just falsehood and we need to um <laughs> the word deconstruct or just you know go back to what scripture and church history teaches yeah I'm that's right new. <laughs> yeah it, it... It's right. It's kind of just going back to. It's really interesting. Deconstruction feels like actually we weren't deconstructing Christianity at all. We're deconstructing these oppressive systems that have been built around Christianity, and actually yes. what's being left over is Jesus and what he was really about. Yes. You know, and what he want, what he wanted us to be, and that's what's left. That's all that's left, and that's all. That's actually what matters the most. I'm in full agreement. Yes, Jesus James. That's what I'm saying in a different, yeah, in, in my own words. Like, let's go back to what Jesus did instead of these idols that we constructed, these false idols, so, in the form of politics. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. It's really amazing when you start to see this. Uh, and it starts to become really obvious to you. That I don't think you can teach this to anyone. People have to do their own, their own work and their own journey. But it's just—I always encourage people. It's so worth it because when things start to when things start to open up and people and you start to see things, it, you're just like, oh wow, you know, how did I not see that before? And it's it's amazing. And actually, it makes me. I mean, I struggled with my faith for a long time, and. You know, uh, the more I deconstructed, uh, the more I got close to losing my faith. The more I, the, biggest, the more I began to find it again. You know, the more I've begun to find Jesus again, and 
See, oh, yes, actually, this makes a whole ton of sense. You know, Jesus, Jesus, you know, turning over the tables, you know, Jesus um, standing up to oppressive systems, you know, and in between the two dualistic groups and saying, you've both got this wrong, and they both killed him. You know, it's, um, yeah. it's, it's so powerful. Your wisdom there, James, I completely agree. And that's why I didn't know, but I discovered after reading, um, you know, I've always, like, loved to read the Gospels and the life of Jesus, like, look at it closely. Of course, I read other scripture or listen. A lot of times I listen to scripture on audio Bibles, but um, that's why the church, Ignatius, and uh, St. Ignatius and the Eastern Orthodox Church say, you know, re regularly read through the Gospels and the life of Jesus as a spiritual rhythm. Because you get to see how Jesus was, not you know that he was the things that you said. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's really what this book is about. It's about kind of unlearning a lot of things, and actually coming back to the roots of who Jesus is. Like, and when you surrender everything and when you let everything go um, that isn't necessary, and you start to get to the root of who you are and then who Jesus is. I feel like that's the heart of the heart of the book. Yes, that that is it, really. Letting all these things go to get, you know, to uh, yeah, empty of the stuff that's crowding out Jesus, crowding out God, the triumph God in our lives. And it's hard. It's not easy, but it requires community and prayer and spiritual rhythm and humility. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it does. Um, well, thank you. This has been really, really great. Um, yeah, I always love having you on here. Um, what would be one message, one word of wisdom that you want to share from the book that people really need to hear right now? Yeah, um, I didn't think about this before you asked me, but I was uh, rereading it because I have a book study tonight. I'm rereading my own book, so I'm familiar with it. But... Um, you know, I talk in uh, one of the chapters, I think it's chapter six that I was reading, when my daughter was now eight, she was three, when I was staring at her. And she's like, Mommy, why are you staring at me? And I said to her, because I delight in you so much. She could see the sparkle in my eyes. And then I caught myself and I said, and I thought, you know, this could be a teaching moment. And I said, because... Um, God looks at you this way, too. And she said, you mean God looks happy at me? I'm like, yes, God looks happy at you, meaning God sees us with delight. He's not, like, angry and annoyed. And, I mean, obviously he's sorrowful when we sin and we turn away from him. But God loves us so deeply. And I hope that one thing we get out of the book, the vision of God has of us and other people, how God sees us, and how God sees others. And I think if we can catch that, it will change our lives. And I tried a little bit, to the best of my ability, to present that as I see it. That's beautiful. That really is beautiful. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank you. I'm, again, really honored to be on with you, and, and I think so much of you, so thank you. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. And um, people can uh, get the book. The book's called The Only, the Only Way Down Is Up. No, the only way up is down. 
Sorry. <laughs> you got it. The way up is down. And yep, they can order it online uh, from University, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, mostly anywhere you can order things. And where can people find you online? Yep, they can go to MarlenaGraves.com. They can find uh, eventually this podcast and all information about me and uh, where to order the book. And if they want to contact you through there, that would be great. MarlenaGraves.com. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you, Marlena. It's always a pleasure to have you on here. And I look forward to having you on again sometime. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. Yeah. Take care, everybody.